I would invite you to turn to the third chapter of John's Gospel, and I want to read verses 1 through 9 and begin a series of Advent sermons with a sermon on the new birth. And I have a feeling that some of you have already turned me off. Some of you turned me off because you're thinking to yourself, I've heard all the sermons that you could hear on the new birth. What else could be said that hadn't already been said from that passage? And some of you have turned me off because you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm a Christian and that's a sermon for lost people, the sermon on the new birth. But I want to remind you that these words of John 3 were addressed to the most precise religious leader of Jesus' day, a man who was the quintessence of orthodoxy, a religious ruler. And if you've been reading your Baptist messenger, you've probably been hearing a lot lately about the fact that there are a lot of folks within the congregation, within the church, who have never experienced new birth. In fact, um, there was an article recently uh, it said that probably the greatest evangelistic field of, of lost people is within the congregations of, of local Southern Baptist churches. So maybe it's not as irrelevant as we might think. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you, are, that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that is, born physically, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? I was uh, working late one night at the church in the former pastorate and I heard this kind of a timid knock at the door and I went to the door, answered the knock and there was this young man standing in the hall. He was disheveled and dirty and, and kind of a drifter. I invited him in and he said he needed a visit for a while and, and he told me the same usual story of drink and drugs and all the gory details of the loss of his family, and etc. And I told him how I felt that Jesus Christ could make a change in a person's life 
that could able, enable him to go back and start all over again with a brand new beginning. And I remember how he ended the conversation as he left that evening, kind of with a wistful longing, he said, I just wish it were that easy. I just wish it were that simple. You know, I've seen that look in the faces of hundreds of people that I've encountered, and I've heard that cry in the, in the voices of people that I've counseled. Because I suppose that in every life there is a desire to go back to some place and start over. Oh, if there was some land of beginning again where all of our heartaches and all of our mistakes and all of our foolish pride could be dropped like the shabby old coat at the door and never picked up again. Oh, if there were just some way to start over. But the poet expressed what many of us feel the moving finger writes and having writ moves on, nor all our piety nor wit can call it back or cancel half a line of it. Our habits, our lifestyles are just too fixed. They're too congealed. Some of them are set in stone. And change, especially change in human nature, just seems beyond our grasp. That's what bothered Nicodemus, this, rich, this ruler of the Jews. It wasn't the, desire of the desirability of the new birth that hounded and haunted him. It was the possibility of the new birth that bothered him. I want you to kind of set yourself in the shadows. Jesus is up on top of this housetop to catch a breath of cool air in the evening as was customary. And here comes this ruler of the Jews, this leader of the Pharisees, this member of the Sanhedrin, and he comes in the darkness out of the shadows and asks Jesus this question, in essence, how can one really live? Good master, he said, we know you're a teacher sent from God. I think I, would, I know what your response and mine would have been had we been in Jesus' sandals. Because after all, this is a ruler of the Jews who is talking to a Nazarene peasant and he says, you are a good master rabbi sent from God. We probably would have said, oh, do you really like me? What are the people saying about me? How's my, how, how, how are my votes among the, the masses? Do they like me in the cities as well, in the, as well as in the countryside? But Jesus knew that Nicodemus was not there for him. He was there for Nicodemus, and so he went straight to the point and said, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And it rocked him back on his heels. For here was a man who had been accustomed to giving answers and now he was having to ask life's most frequently asked question. How in the world can that be? I submit to you this morning that Nicodemus could have asked this question three ways. Perhaps he asked the question rhetorically. Listening to the conversation, we might have heard Nicodemus ask a rhetorical question, really something like this. You don't expect me to believe something like that, do you? I mean, 
Are you trying to tell me that it's possible to go back and start over from a mother's womb? You don't expect me to believe that, do you? Look at you, Jesus. Who are you anyway? Oh yes, a Nazarene, they say. Come from Nazareth, that little town. No good thing comes from Nazareth. And what does your father do? Oh, I know what your father does. He's a carpenter, isn't he? And what do you have? Have you ever been to the university? Why, you don't even have a place to lay your head. And, and, and you say you want me to believe something like new birth? Well, look at me, Jesus. Just consider who I am. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. Do you know what it takes to become a member of the Sanhedrin? And you're trying to tell me that you have to be born again? Well, I know the first five books of, by, of, the, of the Scripture from heart, and I can quote you every sermon preached by every prophet you tell me that a man has to be born again. You don't expect me to believe that, do you? Perhaps he was a rationalist and a rationalist is one who believes that everything is the, is the result of its own innate being and that all responses are the predetermined inevitable decrees of the arbitrators of one's destiny. And that man is more of a machine than anything else. He's kind of like a computer. You program him when he's young, when he's a child, and then you set him in motion and he'll live out that computation. That's why the Jews was so stringent in their instruction of children. And that's why the author of the Proverbs said, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from that. Man is programmed by his environment and his birth and his education and society. And he just becomes what those uh, things decree him to become. You don't expect that a man can go back and start over, do you? Perhaps he was a fatalist, like the man who said, sow a thought and you reap an act. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Or as one person said, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But what we're talking about in this passage is not tricks, my friend. And we're not talking about dogs. We're talking about people created in the image of God with the likeness of God stamped upon their soul. And it, it is possible, yes, inevitable, that those people can have a radical, revolutionary change of life. The story of the new birth runs like a thread throughout the Scriptures. Take, for example, the men who followed him. There is Simon Peter who was so cowardly, denied his Lord three times before the rooster crowed. Now he's preaching that sermon at Pentecost, the foundation on which the church was built. And there's Saul of Tarsus breathing out threatenings against the church like a ravaging wolf scattering the lamb, the flock of God, arrested on Damascus, having seen the heavenly vision in the face of Stephen. And now from a prison cell he writes, I fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished the course. From the great murderer to the 
first missionary. That's the change that God makes in Christ. Now you may deny that that could happen to you or to somebody you know, but to deny that it happened to them is to fly in the face of fact. Let me read you a verse of Scripture. It's found in the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians and it begins at verse 9. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's a word that means sexual perverts, perversion, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now the Apostle Paul is writing this to the church at Corinth and he's talking about homosexuals and sexual perversion and, and adulterers and thieves. And then he says a remarkable thing. He says, and such were some of you. And he's writing, writing this letter, their faces come to his mind of all the people who make up the church at Corinth who are just like he described, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Men and women who were at the bottom of the dregs and had experienced a radical, revolutionary, permanent change in the core of their being. You ever known a, a reprobate? In the little town where I grew up, there was a man, probably the most vicious, wicked man in town. He'd just got back to pri from prison about the time I went into middle school for having raped a little girl. And he'd be out work, he was crazy, kind of crazy. He'd be out working in his yard and some of us guys, about middle school, a little bit younger, would go by where he was out working in his yard and we'd taunt him. I'm not sure who, were the, who was the reprobate. <laughs> Whether the guy was the reprobate or we were the reprobates, we'd go by and taunt him. We'd call the little girl's name that he raped and then we'd run, he'd chase us. And we'd make a beeline for downtown Monday. It's about six miles from high school where he lived across the street from school. And we'd make a beeline for, the, for, for town. And when we'd get downtown, we'd scatter out and go into the stores and hide. It was a favorite game. Every revival meeting, some guys would go by to invite him to church to revival they didn't go by many other times. They were all kind of intimidated by him. But at revival times, they'd go by and invite Marcel to come to church. And he'd always come back with the same answer. If I went to church, the roof would fall in. And I remember one revival meeting. Fred Fisher was preaching. It was the greatest revival I've ever been in. And I looked up one night in this service, and Marcel came in with two guys who went and brought him to church. I looked up to see if the ceiling was going to fall in. And I remember how that every night, night after night, he'd come back and you could just see his interest building in him. And men, adult men, 60 of them at that revival meeting got saved. 
And I remember one night there was this kind of a gasp went out across the congregation as Marcel stepped out in the aisle and wept his way to God. How profoundly impressed I was of that. And I watched as several months passed and then one time it happened and I was moved to never forget in a service one day at church he stumbled through his first public prayer. And from that time I have lived with a deep and abiding conviction that it is fundamentally possible for God to make at the core of one's personality a radical, redemptive, permanent life change. Perhaps he made the statement rhetorically. Or maybe he asked the question inquiringly. I can see Nicodemus as a guy with big thick glasses, kind of like the bottom of Coke bottles with a clipboard under his arm and a pencil under, behind his ear. And, and I, I can see him, you know, just you know, checking off the list and, and, and inquiring this kind of an analytical mind. I can see Nicodemus in a laboratory, can't you? Pouring over some microscope as he seeks some kind of justifiable reason to believe. And I can see him holding up a test tube to the light as he investigates and analyzes the reason for faith and, and understanding. I can see that in him. And so I hear him saying to Jesus something like this. Now let me see if I can understand this. I admire you, sir. You get a crowd. Boy, you know how to get a following, don't you? The folks are going mad over you. And I've seen in you something that is uniquely different. Let me see if I can get a handle on what's going on here. What is there more than having been raised by devout, godly parents? And what is there more than having followed the example of my, bro my elders, my fathers, until I am able to express a faith that's my own. Why, Jesus, I can remember from my childhood consciously devoted to the Scriptures. And I don't remember a time when I have consciously disobeyed the law. And I have observed every festival and every requirement of the Judaistic system and I'm confirmed in my faith to believe in God. Now what more is there than that? I mean, what more is there than having been raised in a Christian home, memorizing verses of Scripture in Sunday school, being baptized in a baptistry, giving your tithe, and becoming a part of the committee work of a Southern Baptist church. I mean, what more is there to that than that? If there is something more to becoming a child of God, I want to know how it's possible. I could hear him saying that. Well, he didn't have to look very far because down beneath him in the house below him were men or he could have just kind of taken a little trip down to Jericho and have 
sought out the man Zacchaeus, or he could have made a little trip over to the Sea of Galilee, to the little town of Gadara, and found her who had sold her body, and he would have found the answer to be the same in each one of them. The answer, there's more to it than just being religious. The answer is this, that God in Jesus Christ has broken into human need and through Jesus Christ, God has made a power available that brings about a radical, permanent, revolutionary change. But it is through one's faith in Jesus. Now trusting in God is not enough. Taking a chance on God is not enough. Believing God is not enough. The devils believe and tremble and probably the devils are more convinced of the fact of God than we are. So how does this revolutionary, permanent, radical change at the core of one's being, how does it come to pass? It comes to pass through our faith in the finished work of Christ and by that alone. And I think that I can show you how that works. Listen to this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature... Not by nature children of God, but by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together, for by grace are you saved. Say it with me, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me tell you, the conviction of my heart is this, that salvation, that the new birth only happens to those who place their faith in the finished work of Jesus, and by that alone, leaning on and depending on nothing else and nothing less. Well, you see, the new birth is not the result of some kind of modern Gnosticism that says you can have this superior knowledge of God and only the intellectuals can know Him. Nor is it some kind of modern asceticism where a man learns to have this super self-control. For Jesus did not come in order that we might add a few virtues or subtract a few vices or multiply a few efforts. He came that we might have new birth and accomplished that by His finished death 
and resurrection. And so salvation is accomplished by faith in that finished work and by that alone. And so the big question this morning is, have you ever really trusted totally and completely in Him and what He's done and that only? Or maybe Nicodemus asked the question hungrily. I think he may have said it like this. Jesus, can you tell me how to live? I can't stand another day of life as it is. I've been there from the beginning. I am as religious as religious people can be. I am as orthodox as orthodox people can be. And yet there is inside of me a gnawing hunger. I don't know how to live. Can you tell me? There are many theories about why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. One is that he couldn't get to him in the daytime. There's too many people around. One is that he wanted to come in secrecy, that he would have been outcast by the Sanhedrin and his peers if they saw him with Jesus. So he did not come publicly, came privately. Another is that that Nicodemus, when he saw Jesus in the daytime and heard him speak for the first time, something started happening inside of him. A fire started burning. A hunger started gnawing away at him. And he couldn't wait till morning to get an answer. I vote for the latter. I think Nicodemus came as soon as he could come to say to Jesus, I've got to know how, I've got to know your secret. I need to know how to start all over again. I'm about to die the way it is. I've seen that hunger. I've seen it in the faces of little children. Their parents will bring them to the preacher's office and they'll come in we'll sit down. I'll say, honey, why have you come today? Talk to the preacher. They'll kind of tear up, you know, and they'll say, I want to be a Christian. I've seen it in the faces of adults. I've seen that hunger. I have known that hunger that's never satisfied, that thirst that's never quenched. I think Nicodemus came to say, Jesus, you've got to give me some answers how to live. There's an old Dutch fable that says that three tulip bulbs were in a tulip bin. One tulip bulb was named No, one was named Maybe, the other was named Yes. The weather, the weather had started turning cold and so they were in conversation. No said, I don't think that there is a higher life, a higher destiny for us than this. I'm content to be a brown bulb. Just kind of rolled over to the edge of the bin to wait out the winter. Maybe said, I think there's a higher destiny to life than just to be a brown bulb. 
And I'm going to try my best to reach my destiny. So maybe squeezed himself and squeezed himself and finally gave up in frustration. Yes, said, I believe there's a higher destiny than this. I have heard that the Creator can help us reach our highest destiny. And so one day a hand reached down in the tulip bin and yes, put itself in the hand of the Creator. And the Creator puts that bulb in the garden and in the warmth of spring, that tulip bulb sprang to its highest destiny. This story that relates to this, this, that story and that I'm through. I was preaching revival in the Northwest and on Monday night we had what, is, what we call pack the pews. Now in, in the South it doesn't work. You can have pack the pew and everybody wait till somebody gets here and then ask them to sit. But in the Northwest it was brand new so they packed it out. And this guy who was a member of this church while I was preaching invited his partner. They were very successful businessmen in this city invited his partner and his family to come to church, pack his pew. And they were sitting on the second row, second pew, front row, just packed out all of them around, sitting there, a large family of both families sitting out there. And when I got up to preach, I don't know whether they had been to church much, but I know they hadn't really ever heard or seen a preacher like me preach because you know, I'm a little animated and can't be any other way. And so they laughed while I preached. Now that'll bless you. You trying to preach, and they're, you know, he'd punch her, you know, and they'd laugh. And after the service was over, they were, we were having some punch and cookies down in the basement, and I, I just went down there straight to them. I was just going to kind of love them up. And I went to them, I said, I'm so glad you came. They said, Well, we came back to Pew. And I said, I know that. I said, You're coming back tomorrow night. I know we're not going to pack the Pew tomorrow night, but we want you to come back. He said, Well, probably we'll not be able to make it the rest of the week. I said, oh, I think you will. I just feel like you're going to come every service. I was really putting optimism on them. The next night they were there. They weren't sitting in a pew, packed a pew. They, they didn't laugh. They didn't mock. They just sat and listened. Wednesday night they came back. And after the service, her name was Bill, Margaret, his name was Bill. They were having a little fellowship over at their house and part of the revival thing. And so they asked me to come over there and I went over there and we'd, we'd, begin, we'd begun to be close friends. And we were just sitting around in a circle visiting and having a little fellowship and we started talking about serious things and Margaret said, I think I can believe in Santa Claus, a tooth fairy, before I could believe in God. And she wasn't being smart or facetious, she was just telling it like, it, like she felt. On Thursday night, they brought a friend with them, a woman. They came up to me at, before the service started and they said, we brought our friend and she's having marital problems. Could you come over to our house after the service tonight and witness to her? Now they weren't Christians and they couldn't believe in God. They wanted me to come over and witness to their friend. So we sat around their kitchen table and I shared the gospel with this woman and she was saved and everybody was crying and they were crying and they were hugging and it was just wonderful. On Friday night, when the invitation came, Bill came forward and accepted Christ. 
and, 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 and Margaret couldn't do it. After the service, she told me, she said, Gerald, I'd give anything in the world if I could be a Christian. And Saturday, I said, I told him, I said, do you come back Saturday? Saturday night's kind of a low night. I said, after the service, I'm going to take you all out to dinner. I said, we'll go to the best steak place in Roseburg. I, I was on an expense account, so I had a lot of money to throw around. I, I wasn't spending my own. I said, I'll take you all out to eat. So we went out, and we sat, sat out in the car. They took me back to where I was staying. We sat out in the car at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and we talked about how to be saved. And Margaret told me that night, she said, I'm so proud and happy for Bill. Oh, if I could just, if that could just happen to me. Sunday morning, I preached this sermon on the new birth. And I closed the sermon with the story of the tulip bulbs. And when the invitation began, she came. Everybody just gasped. Everybody had been praying for her. And she came up where I was standing, up on, the t- up on the platform. The preacher was down here, but she came up to where I was standing, and she said, I am, yes. What she meant was, she's putting herself in God's hands. That evening, Sunday evening, I was leaving to come home. And I was saying my goodbyes, and she came up to me and said, I want to give you something. I want you to promise me you won't open it. Till you get home. You'll think I'm silly. And she had a big old brown paper sack and it was all tied up with scotch tape. And I promised her I wouldn't open it until I got home. When I got off my plane in Lubbock, Texas, Margaret, my wife, Margaret, was there to get me. We opened up the paper sack. You know what was inside of it? Tulip bump. In every convocation, There are three kinds of people. There are those people who say this could never happen. This will never happen. My name is no. And there are some who say it might happen, but I just don't know how to do it. I don't don't understand it. I've done all that's required to be religious, and I haven't found any answers. And then there are some who say... I know that God has accomplished all that's necessary in the work of Jesus and I'm going to put my life in His hands and I'm going to trust Him and Him only to be my Savior. I wonder if there's any here this morning who would say yes. Let's pray to God. Father, My prayer this morning is for those who do not know the experience of the new birth, the radical and permanent revolutionary change that Jesus Christ makes in His finished work and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in life. And I pray that if there's a single one, young or old, who has this gnawing hunger and doubt and desire to be born again, to know life abundantly, that he or she would come today to place their self by faith 
upon Jesus Christ because I pray in His name. Now there are three invitations. The first invitation is for you to come trusting in Jesus alone to accomplish His work of salvation in you. Secondly, to come this morning to place your life in the church. Or third, to say, I'm not doing a very good job in making Christ known to others. And I too believe that a man must be born again, but I'm not sharing that gospel and I'm not living the new birth kind of life. I want to rededicate myself to Him. Whatever God leads you to do this morning in those ways, would you do it right away while we stand to sing?